Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, Dr. Tiffany Kuo discusses the influence of cultural context, venues, and patronage in producing opera as she analyzes Francesca Caccini's La Liberazione di Ruggero dall'Isola d'Alcina, which Dr. Kuo refers to as the rescue of Roger. This recording was created in May 2021 as part of LA Opera Connect's professional development series for teachers, Opera for Educators. The subject for the entire day was Expanding the Canon. We asked scholars to consider if the operatic canon is made up of those works that are most frequently performed, who are the composers and what are the works, new and old, that may be brilliant but are currently overlooked, and even more, should be performed more often. Traditionally, we associate operas in this sort of conventional approach. We start, say, with the composer, and we might dive into a work, perhaps accompanied by a score reading, and then we would talk about plot and characters. And this approach is publisher-influenced. Composers are the main actors, and their masterpieces are the subjects of study. If we flip through a music history textbook, we see the outline of music history is chronological and playlist-based, which means it's composer and work-based. And so what I'm proposing is that it's not a zero-sum game, right? You can incorporate more works if you think from a different framework. I love to talk about cultural context. And for operas, it's about the production. What did it take to produce an opera? A production of a stage musical work requires many actors and many resources. And we can begin discussing any period with the concept of patronage. With patronage, those who made the productions possible in opera, they're known as impresarios. During the Renaissance, Baroque, and Classical periods, impresarios were aristocrats. I mean, their titles included emperor, empress, kings, queens, grand dukes, prince, archduchesses. They're all noble people. In other words, they were born into nobility. And this patronage system is known as aristocratic patronage. And these powerful figures funded productions, paid musicians salaries to work in their courts, and even were known to perform in the production as a display of their power. Here, it's interesting, you might not think of her as an impresario, but she is. This is Sarah Caldwell. She's a conductor and stage director, as well as an impresario. She founded the Boston Opera Group, later renamed the Opera Company of Boston, where she conducted, directed, and staged many U.S. premieres. Alongside patronage, I want to emphasize the importance of the venue. Given the elaborate performances, the venue is a key element in learning about the genre. Between the late 16th century and the early 19th century, venues included private homes, and we're talking about extravagant homes, so palaces, and both the indoor as well as the outdoor spaces. And then later on, newly built theaters with funding from aristocrats and from the states. And the concept of beginning a unit or a lesson with patronage is that then we can be more inclusive. Right. These patrons and their spaces produce many operas. For example, if we consider the Gonzaga and the Medici family dynasties, we can include many more works than just Monteverdi's Orfeo. We can also include Caccini, who I'm talking about, and also the madrigals of Barbara Strozzi, who also may get left behind. And just like here, I talked about Sarah Caldwell, she introduced so many U.S. premieres in Boston, including Prokofiev's War and Peace, Schoenberg's Moses and Aaron, Roger Sessions' Montezuma, 
Gunther Schiller's opera, and so on and so on. Instead of thinking about the plot of the opera, consider the plot as a greater collection of mythologies. So for example, Ovid's Metamorphoses was a source of many operas, plots, and themes. So were Greek tragedies and Shakespeare's plays and contemporary plays. And typically plots from a particular period have common themes or tropes that tie to the contemporary events. So another way to expand our repertoire is without replacing one another. You can be more inclusive if you talk about a trope or a theme. Last, my favorite way to rethink the framework and also for myself to discover new works is to follow the singer. I confess that I have attended as many, if not more, performances for the singers whom I like than for the works themselves. I admit that I saw Taishan Sori's name for a while, but it wasn't until I saw the Pearl Noir in the 2018-2019 Met Museum program in which Julia Bullock was the artist in residence for that entire year. Did I start listening to his work more closely because I was so in love with, and still am in love with Julia Bullock's voice. And so in that season, Julia Bullock performed so many new and forgotten works. And another one that she sung was Hans Werner Henze's El Chimarron, which is the runaway slave. So with this framework, I want to look at those two periods, early Baroque and also contemporary 21st century operas. So if we apply this framework to early Baroque operas, which is 17th century, let's look at production. Let's begin with a bang. Operas are spectacles. It is meant to wow the audience. And in 17th century Italy, you would talk about it in terms of its wonder and awe, maraviglia e stupor. In 17th century, that meant that the opera's patron or you know, the sponsor, the impresario, displayed his or her power. So you have patronage as display of power. And then the site of production, the space where all these operas took place, was also a performance of their political power and their cultural display. And last but not least, with early Baroque opera, if we take that framework, the performers are social negotiators. And so here we're going to look at Francesca Caccini, because she's both composer and she also sung in the opera in the role of Alcina. Let's now dive into the aristocratic patronage of Francesca Caccini's The Liberation of Roger. The Rescue of Roger was commissioned by Florence's regent archduchess Maria Magdalena of Austria. In this portrait, you have her in the back and her son, Ferdinand II. This painting dates to around 1623, which is just two years before the performance. At the time of the performance in 1625, Maria Magdalena was already a widow, the widow of Cosimo II, Cosimo of Medici, the Grand Prince of Tuscany. The Grand Duke had just passed away in 1621, and this is after seven years of illness. And at that point, Maria Magdalena and her mother-in-law, Christina of Lorraine, so this would be the paternal grandfather of Ferdinando and the father of Cosimo, who had passed away. So those two became sort of co-powers, like co-regents, meaning that they share their power, and they would share their power until Ferdinando reached adulthood. So Ferdinando, whom you see here as a little boy, um, formally became the Grand Duke in 1631 after Maria Magdalena passed, and then Christina passed in 1636. Now I want to highlight the importance of Maria Magdalena's role here as Regent Archduchess. 
So we're talking about Italy, we're talking about Tuscany, talking about the Medici family. And Maria Magdalena is not of Italian descent. She is Austrian passport identity, unlike her mother-in-law. And she was known to assert the equality of women and men as both an absolute value and as a necessary condition for well-ordered state. So as her husband lay dying, she knew she was going to come into power and before Fernando would become of age. And so this acknowledging of her power and knowing that she was going to rule Tuscany for probably a decade at this point, she yielded that power through commissioning of works. And this was a display to show the not just other parts of Italy, but all parts of Europe to witness. And so the opera, The Rescue of Roger, was only one part of a four-month season of state entertainments to celebrate the visit of her brother. Her brother is the Archduke Karl of Styria, which is a region of southern Austria, and also to celebrate another family member, also of Habsburg descent, the crown prince, Vladislav. And the Polish prince, Vladislav, at that point in 1625, was very well known, and he had been traveling all over Europe sort of in display of his sort of greatness. He had just defeated the Turkish army at the Battle of Kodin, which is modern-day Ukraine. And so he was very much welcome in this sort of home of Maria Magdalena. And this visit display, so you see the three of them, right? They're all Austrian of Habsburg descent. They're descending onto Tuscany. And this is to show the alignment of the Habsburg empire with Tuscany and the papal state as a quote, Catholic league to oppose the Lutheran heresy and to oppose the French sort of future incoming attacks. And so this is incredibly important because this really shows aristocratic patronage at its height in early Baroque period. So with the figures in place, now let's talk about the villa. It's the Villa of the Imperial Hill. And here I'm going to quote from Suzanne Cusick's book, which I got almost all my sources from regarding Caccini. I'm quoting here. Late on the morning of 3rd of February in 1625, 160 gentle donne, noble women of Florence, their husbands, and an unknown number of foreign guests rode in carriages past the Palazzo Pitti, through the Porto San Pier Gattolino, now the Porto Romana, on the city's southern eastern side, and half a mile up a broad tree-lined avenue to the villa atop the nearest hill to the south. And this, in 1625, been recently renovated and renamed the Villa Imperial. And it was dedicated, quote, to the leisure and the delight of Tuscany's future grand duchesses. And the history of this villa is, I just absolutely love it. So the villa had belonged to Isabella, who was the daughter of the first Medici Grand Duke, Cosimo I. And Cosimo I confiscated it from the Salviati family in 1564. So then Isabella married Paolo Giordano Orsini of the Orsini family, and it became their Florentine resident. 12 years later, in 1576, Isabella was murdered by her husband for her open adultery. And then the villa was abandoned completely by the Medici and Orsini family. I mean, this is like a great plot, right? So moving on, it was completely abandoned. 1619, so this is before Cosimo II passes away. So Magdalena already knows that she's about to become the Regent Archduchess. So she acquires the title to this huge property, ordered the road connecting to the city gates be widened and began renovation plans. And the renovation plans are just absolutely amazing. The Villa Imperial became Magdalena's private retreat 
from the official state palaces of Pitti and and of the Palazzo Vecchio. The guest list is actually really rather grand here. So in addition to her brother and her cousin slash nephew, the Polish prince, there was also a cardinal. So a cardinal was just under the rank of the Pope. There was a Marquis, which is you know, a nobleman under just the rank of the Duke. There was the Prince of Malta, and ambassadors from Modena, from Lucca, and from Venice. So this is really a huge grand display of her power that she is now in control. And I want to emphasize here, just kind of take a brief note to say that this work is actually not just an opera. It's in three parts. So if you look at the score and the incomplete work, it's called a comedy in music. It's a balletto composed in music with three parts. The first part's the comedy in music, which we now call the opera. And then it's followed by a ballet performed by women. So the idea is that the singing would finish and then there were invited noble women to perform a ballet as a display of power that they control. So it's only women for this one. And then it would conclude in a horse ballet, which is not very common these days. That is yet another display of power. And the importance of these two, one, like I said, is that the name dame of the court would deliberately dissolve the barrier between representation and reality. And there's just two more names I want to include, the, the libretto, and also the set design is by Alfonso Parici. So then now you have this wonderful historical context and, and the patronage system. Now we can look at the singer and the work. So Francesca Caccini. I'm going to begin in the middle and then sort of work backwards and then work forwards. We're beginning with 1625 when the work was premiered. At this point, she was 37. She's the music director of the court. She's a veteran composer and she's very well known. She had already been serving at the Medici court for quite a while, since the 1600, actually. Specifically in 1607, she entered the service of the Grand Duke of Cosimo II. She is a composer, a teacher, and a singer. She was also known in the Rome circles. In 1607, she was also married to her first husband, Giovanni Battista Signori, and he is a singer. And like I said, in 1600, that's when she began working for the Medici family. She was very well known as the debut. She debuted her singing role in the wedding of one of the Medici weddings. This is Maria de Medici with Henri IV of France. That debut is actually her father's work. So then now moving forward from 1625, sadly she was widowed the year after. 1625 and 1626. In 1628, she married another singer, but an amateur singer and a patron. And then in 1628, she also entered the service of another diplomat, a banker. Sadly, she was widowed again. And her last sort of working environment was in Florence. She went back to Florence, entered the service of the Dowager, whom we had previously met, the Christine of Lorraine, and also the Grand Duchess. And she passed away somewhere around 1641. Um, and I just want to highlight this incredible sort of journey of hers. You can sort of see how influential she was in the Tuscany region. Between 1622 and 1627, she was the highest paid musician on the staff of the Grand Duke of Ferdinand. So now we can get into the work. The myth. What is this myth? What is a story? What is the plot? Well, in one sentence, I'm going to sum it up. It is the rescue of a young knight, Roger, from a feminizing sorceress, Alcina, by a benevolent sorceress who is also bigendered, and her name is Melissa. 
And this is a really interesting story because it's based on Ariosto's Orlando Furioso, or The Frenzy of Roland. And that is a long Italian epic with 46 contos. And this tale is segmented, just this one, The Rescue of Roger, is from segments 6 through 10. And it was first published in 1516, so almost like 100, a little bit more than 100 years before the opera itself. And the important part of this story that gets retold in opera form, and I'm just going to give it to you as sort of like in a cute way here. So Christian female um, warrior Badamante is in love with a um, an, an Arab, Roger. But the female character, she's actually never seen. So he's captured fairly early on in the opera. And the idea is that he's taken captive by Alcina to her sort of magical island. And it is the duty of Melissa to go to the island on behalf of to rescue Roger. And so this is really sort of just like the synopsis of the plot, if you will. And what's interesting is that while Melissa's on the island, she also frees Alcina's other former lovers and also other captives. And these other captives, and this is the part that makes it a comedy. Okay, so when Alcina captures somebody, she turns them into a plant, into trees, because she's tired of them. So there are many layers of this myth, right? First, there's the fact that it's based on Mariosto's epic, and that is based on the legendary adventures of the Knights of Charlemagne against the Moors. And then you also have this like commonality of the myth and Maria Magdalena's situation, this idea of women freeing men. So Melissa as a female benevolent sorceress. And so you can parallel that with the contemporary of Maria Magdalena. We're going to listen to something because <laughs> I feel like I've talked quite a lot. So the segment I want to present to you comes from scene two. And in this scene, it's that sort of really funny moment. And even though it's sung in a lament, it is meant to be a funny moment because the plants are pleading to Roger because Roger had just been sort of like woken up by Melissa. He's been woken up from the spell of Alcina. And now the plants are playing with him, like, please take us with you. And it's the plants are sort of sung in this magical format in the style of a lament. It's in five parts. And there's a couple of solo singing and one plant sings and then the, the rest of the plants sing. And then you'll hear Roger sing and then you'll hear the plants solo singing again, along with the group singing. Soffrire virtù, 
listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. <laughs>